Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Welcome back to Little Cuts, our weekly mini-sode where we just dig into the things that we've been watching recently. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. This week we are talking about Hammer Horror, a 2000 slasher, a new horror film, and a found footage horror movie that desperately needs distribution. Ooh. I know. I'm so excited to talk about it. I love it when you find these these little random uh, <laughs> <know>. movies that... <laughs> I know. I'm very excited. I like that because then I'm like, everyone watch them. And then hopefully they and people get people's attention. Look at you. I know. Like, it's weird. I like you're it. Like an influencer. I'm like, am, I, am I a found footage horror influencer? <laughs> <laughs> the, only, the only one of my kind. <laughs> the only influencer I ever want to be. Well, that also means that you're the best. Oh. Ugh. I don't know about that. But well, anyway. if there's no one else to compare yourself to, then you're obviously the best. Wow. I don't, that feels weird. To... <laughs> Whatever you say, Terry. Well, deflecting compliments, because I don't know how to take them. <laughs> Can you tell me about... 
Yeah, so um, I tell was me continuing... about things. <laughs> I will tell you about things, all the things, or at least two things. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, so I last week I watched um the uh, Ernest R. Dickerson directed Tales from the Crypt uh, movie uh, Demonite, and. Yeah. Everyone kept talking about this other one that he directed called Bones from 2001, which uh, I had never seen before, but I know a lot of people really like. And so oh, yeah. I was like, I'm going to watch this one next. And so for those that don't know, it it's the IMDb says it's 20 years after his death by a gunshot, which isn't necessarily true. Gosh, <laughs> IMDb. Jimmy Bones comes back to life as a ghost to wreak revenge on those who killed him and to clean up his neighborhood. So this this movie is like a haunted house movie that turns into a slasher. Oh. So there's this giant kind of gothic building that is in the middle of um, this very urban area that's falling apart and has been for 20 years. And a group of, of young adult entrepreneurs have purchased the building and are planning to turn it into a nightclub the shenanigans unfold because the place has been haunted by uh, the character of Jimmy Bones, who's played by Snoop Dogg. He's been haunting the place ever since he died in the seventies. He was like a, a numbers runner in the seventies. And then he ends up getting uh, betrayed and murdered by a bunch of people who end up stabbing him. And then I guess technically he does get end up getting shot and that's what killed him. But he's been, he's been pretty much like stabbed to death up till that point as well. And okay, now that, wow. Yeah, and now that new people have moved into the building and are trying to renovate it, it, of course, starts to bring him back to life. And so there's there's hauntings and there's some creepy stuff and there's some, like, dream stuff. And it feels – I would say that the tone, it feels like it, it's kind of pulling from some um, – in particular, like, Nightmare on Elm Street. But I would also oh. – I would also say that it, it it is also kind of a throwback to sort of the universal – monster movies of like the the there's a there's a scene where they walk into this this building and there's like this gothic staircase and i'm like oh that's really giving me like dracula vibes from back in like the universal days of bella lugosi and it's definitely aping that kind of gothic meets urban feel to it that i really really liked i i do think it kind of takes a little bit too long to get to the slasher part and then the slasher is like the last i would say the events leading up to the third act are sort of like boom, 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 because he kind of gets rebirthed and goes after the people that wronged him. So it, I don't think it completely works for me, but I really I really enjoyed it. And the, the visual artistry on display by by Ernest is is phenomenal. Snoop puts in a good performance. I was um, going to say, what's it like seeing Snoop Dogg in that kind of role? <laughs> <laughs> Understated. Uh, I mean, he has okay. that, that kind of like chill personality. And okay. he's... When he comes back as a ghost, he is he is kind of a wide brim hat and like a black trench coat that kind of gives him a, a, like a, a gothic cape like feel to it. Um, oh. So he's he's kind of it's kind of he's kind of good in it. Pam, Pam Greer's in it, and I love her. <gasps> Always good, forever. Yeah. So I really enjoyed this. Um, I don't think it's as good as uh, Demon Knight. I'm really upset though because I I would have loved to have seen this turn into a franchise. Oh, that would be so cool! Just the pictures, like the like the screen stills from the film, look really cool. Yeah, there's this one scene where uh, there's like a wall turns into almost that that you know that scene in uh, 
in Nightmare on the Street where, well, I think it's number four where he rips off his, Freddie rips off his shirt and he has like all the, the bodies like pressed against and they're trying to. Yes. There's a scene that's like a wall of, and it's all kind of filmed <gasps> in sort of grays and blacks of people, of people trying to like pull out of the wall. And it's, it has that very latexy sort of creepy, weird feel to it that I'm like, it's, it's almost reminding me of like H.R. Geiger meets like pinhead goopiness and i'm like give me more of that i loved that okay and it's filmed really well because the dop was um uh, martinez labiano who also shot the shallows um so it has like it has a very stylish feel to it so i uh i it just i this the story i don't think completely worked for me but um all the visual trickery on display and a lot of the practical effects and just really, really stood out to me. So I really liked that one. And that was cool. Bones from 2001. That sounds awesome. Okay. Thank you for putting those both on my list. Like, to, like putting them back up on my list to, yeah. to watch. Because I do want to watch watch these. Oh, I think I've seen a cover of Bones before. And I was like, S- I saw Snoop Dogg and Bones. And it's terrible. And he's like, Snoop Dogg? That must just be a stoner horror movie. Which is terrible. And I, like, shouldn't have assumed that. So... I probably had a similar assumption. I was like, Snoop Dogg in a movie? I didn't, I, and I I probably just, I honestly probably just discounted it because I'm like, he's a, he's not, he's a singer, not a, <laughs> not a movie yeah. person, not an actor, which, I mean, if you see the number of people that cross over from the two, it's, it's a really stupid thing to think, but that's probably what a uh, 20 year old Terry would have thought, I think yeah. at that time. Yeah. Fair, fair. That was probably what young me thought when I saw the cover. But it's good. Cool. So tell me about this uh, found footage movie, though. Okay. So <laughs> I, her name is, so this is Michelle Nezick's found footage film from 2016, O Unilateralis. And so Michelle Nezick on Twitter, she is at M underscore N-E-S-S-K. She is, you know, she's an actress, a writer, a producer. She does a lot of stuff in the horror community. But she made this film, O Unilateralis, which is both a creepy horror movie and a really, like, interesting critique on rape culture. Oh. So basically, like, two of my favorite things put into a found footage movie. I was lucky enough that she sent me a link. So this hasn't gotten distribution yet. It hasn't been released anywhere yet, but she's working on it. But I just wanted to put it out there because I want more people to know about it and have more demand for it. So people like so she can have more backup in getting this this film distributed because it's really, really good. These two guy friends go on a camping trip to make a movie and they and they bring along um, this new girl from their school. They're they're in college. This new girl who is like very she's very sheltered, came from a very like Catholic family and so she's like kind of going out on her own for the first time and like she's never drank or smoked weed and so they're going on this journey and it's like this very weird tension between the two the two male friends and her and it's like this very uncomfortable like one of the guys is really nice to her the other one is like kind of hitting on her but trying to be funny and it's like this very like awkward really awful tension which is the point and then in the background there's like a zombie thing going on and it's the zombie part is very understated and i loved that um i think people who see it might be like oh i thought this was going to be like a zombie movie there's not a lot of zombies in it but it's supposed to take a back it basically takes the back seat to this actual story about the way that men try to groom women Mm. and i i absolutely loved it um, I think it's a found footage movie that really pushes what you expect from found footage. And 
you know, so there are not very many found footage films directed by women. So again, it's very nice to see that. It's a hard film to watch, but in a way, in like a kind of not in a gore way, but in like a you know what's coming kind of way. And it makes you feel a little sick because you're watching it from the guy's perspective. Mm. And so you, it really takes that idea of the male gaze and really implicates you in it. Right. In a really, in a really important but really uncomfortable way. Like it's nauseating to think about like what it means to be in his subject position when he is not a very good person. That's, wow, that's, that's interesting because yeah. that's, I think that is one of the powers of found footage is by putting you in that cameraman's perspective. And yeah, exactly. So that's, boy, that does sound really uncomfortable. <laughs> it is really uncomfortable. And it's going to be one of those movies that like people are going to watch and be like, there wasn't any gore in it. Like, this is so annoying. It's so woke. And I'm going to be like, fuck you. There's so <laughs> many other movies that you can watch. Like, this is these are the kind of films that you want to see experimenting with that form. Like, you know, people can make a found footage movie, but it'll just be the same one we've seen all the time. It's going to be Paranormal Activity, Variant, Grave Encounters, which is fine. But I also love that, you know, women behind the camera are using that format to make something important with a message. And I think that's what, like, you know, evolving genres are for. So Absolutely. Oh, unilateralis. I'll make sure to spell it out in the description of the podcast so you can you can get that. But that is, um, it's not, you can't find it anywhere yet, but I'm going to make sure it does find somewhere. <laughs> I swear to it, I will make sure. You know, that might be a good, this might be a good place to, um, we, we did get an email um, from Jazzy, oh, from yeah. at Jazzy John, with a question about kind of rape revenge films in a way, I, well, in mm-hmm. specifically about them. And he um, he wrote and said that while he w- were making we were making our wrong turns through Jalo Land, he was diving into a different rabbit hole. The Japanese female prisoner scorpion movies of the early seventies. Have you ever seen those, Mary Beth? I actually haven't. Okay, I haven't either. And he says that rape revenge films are always a touchy subject, but he just wanted to know where we draw the line between a necessary plot device and just outright gross exploitation. And he says because he's torn because he feels these movies definitely cross that line, but they have a really cool moments that even dip into the supernatural. And he says that when Scorpion dons her iconic hat and trench coat and starts serving looks and stabbing fools, it's so damn cool. Um, and I think that's a good question. Uh, I'm, yeah. I don't know if I don't really have any thoughts on it personally. Yeah. So this is a so it's I'm going to answer this question without having seen those movies. So I hope that it's going to be like a relevant response because it sounds like this Japanese female prisoner scorpion movies. It seems like they're probably in a similar vein of like the video nasties and the, you know, I spit on your grave just in like in the terms of topics and like being exploitation. And also, mm-hmm. so the, the thing that is with rape revenge is that it's a deeply personal subgenre. So not every, and I'm talking about this in the perspective of survivors. Like this is, me coming from that perspective because like not everyone is going to be comfortable with these movies they are very intense they are very violent they are very uncomfortable and particularly with survivors there are some of us like me who really like these movies and like to watch them to kind of understand how rape culture has been addressed throughout the decades and some people fucking hate them for very valid reasons so for me in drawing the line without line is so for me, the big indicator about if a rape revenge movie is just trying to be spectacle 
versus trying to really tell us like a, a more nuanced story is the length of the rape scenes and the intensity of the rape scenes. Because in films like MFA, it's by Natalia Elite, that rape scene is very intense, but you're focused on her the whole time. Um, in the movie Holiday by Isabel Eckloff, the rape scenes really is, it's not graphic, but it's shot from a very cold, neutral camera for a reason. So like the ways they're shot makes sense. And then there's I Spit on Your Grave, where it's just like half the movie is her getting raped on a rock in the middle of the woods and getting torn apart in her house and her book getting ripped apart. And so to me, while I do, like, I, I don't hate that I sit on your grave. Like, I do enjoy that movie. But that, to me, with that, ex- like, it, it's extensive, long torture, that's when it becomes just spectacle to me rather than something else. Because, sure, the character might be badass when she, like, puts on her hat. And, you know, it's there. And again, like, you don't have to hate. You don't have to like every part of it. Like, you can be like, this, this part fucking sucks, but it's really cool when she gets her revenge. And so it's this, it's a, <laughs> there's no easy answer to this question. I yeah. know I'm rambling. There's no easy answer, but I think it's important. Like you brought this, like in the email bringing up that, like, you know, there's parts that make me uncomfortable and parts that I like, I think leaning into that kind of those feelings and navigate the, navigating them is important when watching exploitation films. Like you can still like exploitation films and think they're gross and be able to kind of parse out why they're gross to you, but still enjoy them. Like I like exploitation films. Yeah. Are they problematic? Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, <laughs> like, they're also fascinating. And so, and that's why I like watching these things. Because it's really interesting to see how they've evolved over the years. Like, I wrote a piece for The Bite this week um, about female directors and exploitation films. And how, like, Doris Wishman was making films within the genre. And, like, it just, it depends. But basically, the short the short answer is, if your rape scene is is just like gratuitous for the sake of being gratuitous, then it's going to make me feel really uncomfortable. That's kind of where I draw the line in how they filmed the rape scene. The TLDR, my very long-winded answer. <laughs> yeah, I, that makes sense. I, You know, and the other thing I think is that it's important to, I think, look back at those films, understanding the time, but also understanding how a lot of films we see today are either in response to them or they exist because those films existed at one point. And so while I am not personally into those type of movies, there is, you can see like a direct line of influence from something like that leading up to say revenge, which is an exploitation film, but does it in such a interesting way that is definitely like a response to those films, I think. Exactly. And I think, that's important to look at like there are exploitation films being made today, but they don't look the same. And that's, what's really fucking cool. Like, you know, it's not going to be the typical like grindhouse exploitation film that you're used to seeing, but like revenge is still an exploitation film. Like mm-hmm. this film, like you could even make it an argument for like violation and Rose plays Julie, which are two very subdued rape revenge movies can be considered exploitation because they handle those subjects, but they have evolved in how they handle those subjects and changed what it means to make ex- exploitation cinema. So I think exploitation cinema is it's good. It exists. It's changed into something different now and it's changing into something that's being, it's becoming empowering and it's changing gazes, which I think is so fucking cool and why I love horror movies and why I love women. Um, because I think exploitation is now in our hands and by ours, I mean like people who identify as women 
like it's a, it's kind of more an our court and we can kind of tell these stories from a much more nuanced perspective while also still making gross uncomfortable movies but i'll also say she does look really badass i don't know if you saw she the pictures she does look very badass so the the movie the title of the movie the first one is female prisoner number 701 colon scorpion okay so that's the first one it looks like and then there's a bunch of sequels so it looks badass she looks she looks like i I, I love her style (laughs) yeah and that's the thing it's like a lot of these women are badass like yeah they're treated like shit and it's it's important to interrogate that but also they do have these really cool empowering moments so it's an interesting kind of like line to walk but again Everyone has a different experience with these movies. Like, and that's the joy of it. Like you can love them or you can hate them, and it's not really anyone's business as long as you're not being a dick about it. There Please. you go. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I just go for everything. Like you can like it or hate it, just don't be a dick. Yeah. So well, Yeah, I can talk about John. this forever, as you could tell. <laughs> <laughs> I should shock no one. Um yeah, thanks for that email. That's really that was a really I like when you guys send us questions like this. It's fun to like talk about it and yeah. Um so moving on from that, Terry, what's this um new horror movie you want to talk about? So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it cuz I really want to talk about our Hammer Horror. I just want to kind of throw it out there that there's a new movie that is out today. Um it's called Sun. Like in the sky or like your As son? As in my son, S O N. Okay. My son is, I don't have a son, people, so don't. (laughs) (laughs) My son. (laughs) But as an S-O-N. And it is about a woman who um, has escaped a, okay, eight years before the movie, uh, yeah, about eight years before the movie started, she escaped a cult and she was pregnant. And she gives birth to the kid in a car as she's trying to escape them. And then it cuts to eight years later. The kid is now eight years old and she has moved into another location. It's un- you're uncertain whether she remembers the whole thing or whether it's been blocked from her memory. She- her son starts to get this weird. Well, first there's this really creepy scene one night where she's like in bed and she thinks she hears her son walking down the hallway and she calls to him. He doesn't answer. So she goes, opens up his door and his room is full of people that are what? staring at her. yes and then the door slams in her face she can't get in she runs across the street to her neighbor she's panicking telling her to call the cops she runs back upstairs the door is open her son is is um now lying in bed and there's no one else in the room and of course the cops don't believe her and then he starts to have these um epileptic fits he gets sent taken to the hospital his skin is like breaking out into some like really weird bruising patterns and um, he kind of gets an appetite for human flesh. No fucking way. Then the cult starts to show up again. And so she ends up going on a run with her son to escape them. This Okay, this movie's not great. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to laugh. <laughs> I... I and that's why I don't really want to spend too much time on it, but it is I it is good. I I enjoyed it. Um I do think that it sort of plays a little too heavily on the is she crazy or isn't she crazy aspect of the movie. And honestly, a lot of it is predictable. Like I knew exactly 
where it was going the moment characters were introduced and what was happening uh, except there's a couple moments that aren't but the 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 relationship between the mother and the son actually like really saved this movie because mm. she is so desperate to to save her son no one believes her and she's also dealing with a kid that is now desiring human flesh and so that dynamic is really interesting to me and it really it really picked up some of the areas that weren't so interesting to me like Emil Hirsch playing a cop that's like fallen in love with her after meeting her one night I <laughs> so there's you know, like the usual the, the usual yeah and i mean they explain they explain some of it and it, it makes sense in the end but like uh it, it's not great but it is out there and if you are looking for kind of a gory little take on um i would compare it to like a more serious eli in some ways <laughs> um more serious but okay. uh <laughs> not okay. the camp classic that that was camp uh, classic eli <laughs> I think there's there's enough here that I, I, I give it um, a slight recommend. Okay, cool. He also directed The Canal, if anyone has seen that, about the guy whose wife disappears and he gets obsessed with The Canal. It's actually pretty decent. Is it? Yeah. Like, this is shot really well. It's acted really well. It just, the story to me just hits way too many. Um... Yeah, his, his writing's a little bit uh, cliche. Uh, cliche is a good way of describing the writing in this. Yeah, I would say so. But yeah. it's very visually well done, and there's some really good gore gags in it, I would say. Cool. That sounds great. So. So. It's our first week of talking about Hammer Horror. It sure is. What film did we watch for today, Terry? Oh, we watched Horror of Dracula, which I had not seen in oh my God. somewhere over 30 years. and And I had never seen it ever. I well, I I really want to hear what you thought, but I will say that you know we've talked before about how we've seen movies and we have may not have seen them in in a long time, and then a score comes in or there's like an image or there's something and it just brings you right back. Well, the moment this movie starts and it has this bombastic score and it's like this image of this gargoyle and then there's the red letterings and it's just this such a ah the score the score in this movie is so fucking good but let me tell you it brought me back to being like a, i don't know how old i was six seven somewhere around there year old kids sitting in front of my tv just like enraptured with this this movie james bernard composer fantastic i loved it but i want to know what you thought mary beth so i love vampires and i love dracula dracula is a story that I am obsessed with. I read it when I was younger and I just love all variations of the story. And this is another testament to how no many, how many fucking times you've seen the story. It can be done in so beautifully eaten so differently. I, so my favorite version of Dracula is Bram Stoker's Dracula by Francis Ford Coppola mm-hmm. with, um, that epic craziness. This one is so close though. Like it's much more, obviously a little less intense <laughs> than <laughs> that one. But Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, like I have not, I had not seen this movie. I'd heard about them. I knew about their chemistry. Christopher Lee is everything to me. Him as Dracula is so good. He's just, he oozes that like sexuality, but like in a much Mm. more subtle way than Gary Oldman's character. Mm -hmm. When he goes from like old as hell to real sexy. And he oozes that charisma but so does van Hel- peter cushing has been helsing with his furry mm. collar and his mm. jacket like they're both just two very like charismatic people and them together is just so explosive to watch and the settings are gorgeous like 
these movies, like ha- these Hammer Horror, I've only seen one other Hammer Horror movie, and the way they design these gothic castles and they have them like these ornate decorations and draperies and mm. paintings, mm. it's just so delicious to watch and see and to take it in. Like you're just drinking up every inch of it. And that's how I also felt with this movie, and uh, I just really liked it. <laughs> there were two. There's two things. Well, there's one thing I really remembered, and there's one thing that that surprised me when I on this rewatch. And the first one is when Jonathan Harker he's there, and then it's revealed early on that he actually is there to kill Dracula. Yes, I know. I was very excited. I was like, "Oh, we got some twists. We got some little twists here. Like this isn't like he's a lawyer that came there, like." To help right. him with his books. I was very, I was like, oh, I love, I love the changes. I was very excited about that. And some of the changes are done because it had a very small budget and they couldn't really shoot in a lot of places. So it ex- it exercises, it exercises like a bunch of stuff from the book with like the, the trip across the, the, the sea and all of that kind of stuff. That's gone. Everything is very close proximity to this castle. It feels like, um, but I don't mind it. And I love I no, love that it's yeah. doing something different with the story that's not telling the same old story of Dracula that we got in Universal. Well, yeah, and I know that they couldn't call this Dracula because of the Bela Lugosi 1931 film, so they had to change it to the name a little bit because of that. Yeah, here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the U.S. And so, but I liked like the subtle changes, like Jonathan's married to Lucy and Mina is his sister-in-law. Like things that aren't like a huge change, but it is kind of cool to see that little twist on it. Especially yeah. with Lucy, especially with Lucy and how Lucy's story goes, like because Lucy's story mimics how her story goes in the book, but is in a different context. And I thought that was really interesting and a little bit more tragic too than what happens to Mina, uh, Jonathan mm-hmm. Harker's fiance, in the books. I was also surprised to realize after because I I had, didn't really think about this before that this movie came out in 1958, and this movie oozes sex. Um, it oozes sex. There is a lot of does. It's not heaving bosoms and stuff like that, but it is definitely giving you like, oh, she just had sex. Like this is this is erotic. This is uh, when when Dracula. Oh my god! When Dracula first interrupts the the vampire that's going to bite. uh, Well, that does bite Jonathan Harker, and the look of in his eyes. It's like he's gone from this very well composed man to to this. His eyes are bloodshot. There's blood on his teeth, and he just looks like a deranged monster. I was like, Oh, I love that. But then, Oh my God. Yes. It's so good. And then it goes later to like Lucy. That's like looking with this look of excitement and fear in bed that she's like, you know, she's going to get it on is basically the the inference (laughs) of what's happening in this. Well, yeah. Like she like gets out of bed and like her diaphanous nightgown and she opens the windows and it's like, Oh, she's preparing for her booty call. Yeah. She like, she like lays herself down in her bed. It's like, I am ready to be ravished. (laughs) It's so fascinating. Like the ways that sex is injected in these movies without it being like, overtly in scare quote sex but watching it now you're like mm-hmm. oh, I very see. sexy i see what you're I doing you. here 1958 <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> plus you know there's a lot of things from here that um i think you can see influencing vampire cinema from there because i i believe that this is um lucy's staking scene i want to say is a direct influence on Fright Night with uh oh. with um gosh what is his name Peter Vincent when he has like 
one of his movies that that's showing in the background and he's like staking a, a vampire in the coffin and blood just keeps like splatting in his face like that is taking this scene to an to an nth degree and of course you know there's peter vincent it's pulling in peter cushing and vincent price his name is you know port port Menno, port it's a combination it's a combination of those two portmanteau names. portmanteau there you go <laughs> But yeah, 1958, giving us sex, giving us violence, giving us burned heads with crosses on it. Yeah. Oh, and the one thing I wanted to note was the effects at the end when he um, when he defeats Ha 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 Dracula was actually pretty good. Mm-hmm. I mean, for 1958, like the time lapse of his body like falling apart, that was pretty impressive. Like that final confrontation. Yeah, and there's all there's also a scene that um, hasn't it wasn't in the cut that I saw. Um, I think some cuts have put it in. It, it was it was cut out. It was censored originally, where they had put um, some kind of like clay or something on Dracula's face, and there's actually a scene of him like pulling down his his flesh as he's and there's like a red layer underneath it. So like they and I think it got cut out of um, because of off <laughs> obviously censorship, and I think there yeah. might be a version of it that has that put back in. Uh, mine did not have it, but yeah, that the the effects of his of his aging, his like rapid aging, are I think really good for especially considering nineteen uh, fifties. Yeah, it was yeah, it was very impressive. Also, hammer red blood is just like the perfect. Color. Oh, it's so cool! <laughs> it's the perfect color. That about wraps up this week's little cuts. But before we before we end, Terry, who are we talking to on? Monday and what hammer horror film are we talking about next (laughs) okay so on Monday our our Monday's episode is going to be our chat from October's frightening ass film festival with uh, Natasha Kermani the director of Lucky which is currently streaming on Shudder so if you missed us at the festival you'll be able to you won't be able to see us of course but you'll be able to listen to our our voices so exciting we're so glad and we're talking to her about the strangers we are oh i'm so oh my god ah my dream it was such a good conversation and i'm i'm so glad that we are finally able to share this with you because that was such a fun conversation you won't be able to see my strangers t-shirt and how terry put the strangers (laughs) poster in his background but just envision that while we're talking yes please Um. please do (laughs) and i'm currently editing right now and it is it's good. It's a really good episode. So I'm really looking oh, forward God. to you guys hearing it. That it was forever ago and also not forever ago. <laughs> I know. I mean, we've had new mics since then. Like things have changed since that episode. A uh, really- little bit. But yeah, it is really good. So I'm excited for that one. And then what are we doing for little cuts? We are doing the Hammer Horror film Die, Die, My Darling, which has been recommended by quite a few people. And. I laughed at the name when I first saw it, and apparently it is good. So we're going to watch that one next. Heck yeah. Heck yes. When we were looking through the, the recommendations, that one popped up an awful lot. And I mean, just that title, it's it's giving me like, it's bringing me back to our, our Giallo, you know, just these <laughs> fantastic titles. So <laughs> I love it. Exactly. Um, so listeners, you have heard from us, but we want to hear from you. Have you watched a film that we talked about this week and have any thoughts do you have suggestions for movies we should talk about? Do you have some questions for us that you want us to discuss? You can send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out to us directly on Twitter. I am at MB McAndrews. And I'm at Gailey Dreadful. 
<laughs> and of course, keep the conversation going by chatting with us on Twitter at Scarred Podcast. And please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. <laughs> Thank you, Eric Power, for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please stay safe out there. But most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's the show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.